Uh, excited to jump back into God's Word. We've been in a series uh, we've been looking at called Community Life, looking at gospel-centered community. And so if you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, an incredible passage. So I'm, trying to, I'm going to help you with skipping all the first, the first 10 chapters of Hebrews because Hebrews 10 begins, which I do not want to do. I mean, I would love to just spend time and someday we'll do that, walk through Hebrews together as well. Um, but in Hebrews, really, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that is for one, just an FYI, we don't know who that is. Some want to say Paul just because naturally <laughs> Paul's written a lot of the, the New Testament, but we don't really know who exactly wrote um, the book of Hebrews. Uh, but this author of Hebrews has a high view of the Old Testament. Uh, has a high view of the sacrificial system and helping us see what is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. What was this moral law and how was it fulfilled ultimately in Christ? And so really kind of skipping all that, we get this really, really brief but profound summary of all that happens in the first 10 chapters, starting in verse 19. I want us to read it together. We're going to read just verse 19 and study that this morning, verse 19 to verse 25. Um, but before we do that, um, I don't know about you, but we've been talking about the need for community. Um, there's studies been done on children, and I don't even have to tell you about the study personally, as I've experienced it personally. But there's a study that was done talking about um, isolation and mistreatment of kids, and especially those who grew up in orphanages and without the love and care of a mother and, uh, or a father even in that way, but no one to really care for them, no one to, to hold them, no one to kiss them goodnight, to, 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 when they hear them cry and come running and grab them up, um, something that we get to see and we forget about. Uh, I remember, so we adopted, I think most of you already know that, we adopted our daughter when she was three and a half years old. For three and a half years, basically, of her life, she was in an orphanage in China. And that's why I say I don't think I can, I don't need to tell you about the study very much. I can just tell you from personal experience. But the study helps confirm what we've seen and experienced personally. But is the effects of isolation. You know, when you think of the three and a half years, all that happens. I mean, we got to watch this when Austin and Jenna were getting to see it again as they've uh, just recently had Everly and several of you had babies. And to watch how you smile and hold your children, how you get to interact, or when they cry, you're there to pick them up, or you hold them or feed them, uh, you love them, you care for them. I mean, think of the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of times that happens in about a week. And for three and a half years, our daughter experienced none of that. And what you find is this, that these children, though they might be fed, I'm sure most of them underfed, but even though they're fed food, they somehow still are extremely emaciated, extremely small, extremely underdeveloped. Why? Because we don't realize the value of physical touch, the value of comfort and love, of someone holding you and reaching for you and you smiling at them and them smiling back at you and the cuddles and all those things. And see, this was just telling us, it tells us a great thing about humanity. What is it that we do in the prison system? What's the worst thing that can happen besides execution, I guess, uh, of course? But basically the worst, what's the highest level of punishment they do? You know what it is, right? 
you, know, you put them in confinement. You put them in isolation. You put them in solitary, by themselves in isolation, a lot of times in a dark room by themselves. You know what happens? If you leave someone there long enough, what happens? They become literally insane. In the studies that have been done on children who grew up in orphanages, they talk about as adults how they deal with so much depression, uh, a value of life, they're underdeveloped, they're usually behind in a lot, a lot of ways, and a lot of it all rooted in those first years of life and those, those expressions of love, those touches, those reaching for someone and helping and, and, and caring for. You see, we were designed for relationship. We were designed for community, and that's why we're spending a, a, about six weeks on this topic of community life. And, and we, I think we really got to see this through the pandemic, right? I mean, the statistics of when we were forced into isolation, when we're isolating from people, when we're distancing, social distancing was a phrase that we probably were not aware of until the pandemic. This idea of socially distancing ourselves from people and how devastating that is to the psyche, to the mind, to, the, to our relationships. You see, these are all established, whether it's through study or through life experiences, we see how important the connectedness of people is. And this morning, I want us to draw our attention to this passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read it to you. It's rooted in this wonderful statement, wonderful statements about what Christ has done. And then also the, the power of community. Let's read this together, starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... Okay, so let me just pause there. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... Here is what he's saying. He's basically saying, all that I've established, this author has established in the first 10 chapters. Therefore, based off of all of this amazing stuff, and I know we haven't studied that together, all these different great things, but it's talking about how Jesus is this great high priest. And to just pause for a second, well, I'll, I'll explain that in a second, so we'll just keep reading. Sorry, I can get ahead of myself sometimes. So he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." See, the author here is establishing some for us. And so if you're, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. As first, what we see as we look at verses 19 through 22 is we see this, this call. This, it, all these are imperatives based off of, of theology. And so we see that phrase, let us, let us, let us. But here first we see we're called to let us draw near. And here's what we do. We draw near with a Christ-centered confidence. How can we draw near to this holy God? How could we ever approach a holy God? If, you, if you're familiar a little bit with the Old Testament, you're like, remember, remember Moses. 
Moses has this experience where this fiery bush, this bush is on fire, this, this tree is on fire, it's consumed with a fire, and from this fire comes a voice, and this voice of God, and it's this manifestation, and he's, and he's calling Moses, but what does he tell him to do? Take off your sandals, for the ground you're on is holy ground. If we look at the Old Testament, when people tried to even commune with God, what happened to Moses? Moses had to veil himself. I mean, here he is. He can't see God. You're not allowed into his presence. And so here as he's meeting with God, he's given the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. What does he do when he comes down the mountain? He comes the mountain. He's met with God. And he's only getting picture of God. He's not even getting the full view of who God is and what He's like. He's getting a, a, a portion of that. He's only getting to see, as even God describes it, kind of His backside. And so as, 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 as Moses is having these meetings with God, as he's communing with God, in relationship with God on Mount Sinai, and he comes down the mountain, he's having to veil himself. Because why? When he's been in the presence, and not even the full presence of God, he's glowing, <laughs> literally glowing. And so the people are like, we can't even look at you. So they, he put on a veil to, to, to kind of darken his face to his figure, to the people. It was too much. But how could we ever possibly draw near to a holy God. Listen to what the author is saying. He's rooting it in something. He says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, how can we have ever have confidence? Think about this in the Old Testament. Again, this is why the Old Testament, I think, helps us so much with the New Testament. I think it's good for us. I think sometimes we can be like, ah, whatever, it's the Old Testament, it's old. Let's just study the New. It's the stuff that makes sense to us. The Old Testament maybe doesn't make sense. But the New Testament just applies a lot of the Old Testament and helps us understand Old Testament principles and things and statements. But here, the whole Old Testament is full of the sacrificial system. And Yom Kippur was this day, the Day of Atonement, one day a year. Only one day a year could one person go into the presence of God. It's called the Holy of Holies. So they had established a tabernacle and eventually a temple. But the tabernacle, as they're meeting with God, as they're in the wilderness, they make this tabernacle, this tent, in this tent of meeting. And they're to meet with God. But here's the problem. The people couldn't just meet with God. They're not clean. They're unholy. They're sinful. They're broken. They're separated from a holy God because of their sin. So what happens? This one day a year, this high priest, this high priest through a lot of ritual cleansing and washing that we're even getting hints and, and notes on in this passage this morning, he would cleanse himself, prepare himself, change his clothes over and over again, prepare himself, stay up all night, making sure his heart is pure, that he's ready to go in. Can you imagine what his confidence level is? Like where would your confidence level be in on entering into the Holy of Holies one time a year? I don't know about you, but my confidence level would be pretty low. I'd be nervous, you know, you'd be like breaking into a sweat. You're talking about sweating, like I sweat on Sundays a little bit. I can't imagine this one time a year, this is the moment. If I go in there and I'm unclean, if I have not prepared my heart, I'm dead. I can't meet with God. The confidence level's quite low. I can't go in. And so here he goes in. They would literally put bells on his ankle in a rope because if, if he were to die, who's going in there to get his body? Nobody because they'll die if they go in. So they'd tie a rope to him with a and bell and they stop hearing the jingling of that bell. It's time to pull that guy out. He's dead. Can you imagine? Your confidence has got to be, I mean, like on a 10, 15 and so here they go, and they're going in to enter into the holiest of holies. This is the inner sanctum. Not, not, you're not allowed in there. I'm not allowed in there. No one else is allowed in there except this one person. 
And he's there for one reason only. He's going to offer the sacrifice. He's going to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He's going to offer this sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel one day a year. But guess what? 365 days later, let's do it again. <laughs> oh, no, I've got to do it again. Terror, fear. The next high priest, whoever it is, now they've got to go. And they do it again. And the next year, think about it, the next year, for thousands of years, going in and out, in and out, offering these sacrifices. And here, this author is writing, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... You're like, I can go before God? I can be confident? What confidence? Where is my confidence? How can I approach this holy God and not be zapped, not be undone, not to be destroyed, not to, not to ever live and be able to speak again? How could I ever enter into His presence? How can I have a relationship with Him? How can I know this God? He says, come with confidence. Enter the holy places. Again, this is the picture of the Old Testament, the holiest of holies. To enter the holy places. How can you confidently enter? Listen to what he says. Not the blood of goats, not of a calf, not of animal sacrifices, no, but by the blood of Jesus. Notice, by a new and living way. This is the new covenant that Jesus established. And he says, this is the new covenant established in my blood. Hebrews, the author, also tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. There's no cleansing without the shed blood, ultimately, of Jesus. And notice what it says, the author continues, by the new and living way that he opened for us. How does he open this up for us? How can we, too, have access? How can me, not a high priest... How can me, an outsider of the camp, me, a Gentile, how could I ever get to God? Notice what he does. He opened for us through the curtain. You see this curtain, as one commentator said, under the old covenant. As we read earlier, it's in, in, in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 19 and 22. The priest would sprinkle the blood of animals over objects in the temple to purify them. This was a picture of purifying these objects in the, the temple. And he says, likewise, Christ's blood, figuratively speaking, has been sprinkled on your heart, renewing it so that you have new life. And this is the picture he's showing is by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. What this means is this, when Jesus, if, if you remember this story, when Jesus was on the cross, and he says, it's finished. I've appease the wrath of God. I'm paying, I'm, I am now the payment for all of mankind. I have died the death for these people, for all the people. And that's why he cries out to the Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But in this moment, he's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he's being forsaken for me and for you. He's taking the punishment for us. But what happened as soon as he took his last breath? We find this out in Matthew. In Matthew, we get told a story about what happens at the temple. You see, in the temple was this giant, huge curtain. And in this curtain, it is the dividing wall between the holiest of holies, the holy place. As you get into the holiest of holies, where, where this, this priest, the high priest, would enter in through this curtain and go in there where no other person was allowed in, all of a sudden, when Jesus dies on the cross, when his blood had been shed and poured out, 
for the forgiveness of sins, it tells the, the, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a symbolic picture saying, there's no, you all have access because Jesus' blood was sufficient for the penalty of sin. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, since we have this great high priest who has torn the curtain, but notice what he's saying that curtain is, that dividing wall between us and God, that curtain has been torn. How was it torn? It tells us through his flesh, his body. You see, his body is what allows us, his body being broken, his blood being poured out is what gives us access to God. And so here's the call. So how are we to draw near? It, draw near, and the point is, is, is really self-explanatory, is draw near with a Christ-centered confidence. The reason we're called, let us draw near, is because of what Christ has done. It's rooted in what He has done. Because He has paved the way for us to have, have relationship with God, the invitation is to draw near, come in. It's an invitation. He's inviting us in. He says, draw near. Notice this with a few statements. He says, let us draw near with a true heart. Notice this, confidence with full assurance. How do we have this full assurance of faith? You see, we can have the full assurance of faith because of what Christ has done. Our confidence isn't in self. My confidence isn't in me. Did you hear the song we were singing? My worth is not in what I own. It's not in what I've done but it's only in the costly wounds of love at the cross. You see, our confidence isn't in, did I pray the right words that God would accept me? Did I do the right things? Have I observed the right things? Did I attend church or not? You know, here's this verse is telling me, some are not neglecting, like don't neglect to meet together. Make sure we're meeting together. These are things. But what if I don't? Does that mean I'm not? Like, is my confidence in me? Or is it in what he has done? You see, the confidence lies not, man, if I would be very, I would not be very confident. I'd be very concerned if I put it on myself because for about 15 years of my life, 12 years of my life, my confidence was in me. Am I good enough? Am I, am I pleasing enough? Have I done all the right things? And I was exhausted and tired of trying to do these things. And my confidence was weak. I felt it. I knew that I did not have a relationship with God because I was trying, but it just didn't, it didn't, I didn't feel like I could ever be good enough, and I was trying my best to be good enough. My confidence was low until one day when I feel like God opened my eyes to my desperate need of Him, and I understood that He had accomplished all that was necessary for my salvation. I just needed to put all my chips on the table in Him. I'm going, I'm going all in, God. I'm, you have done everything for me. I'm putting my trust, my hope, my everything is in what you have done. And see, this is what we're called to do, to draw near with a Christ-centered confidence. Why? Because he says this, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Here, because of what Christ has done, our conscience can be clean. Our hearts can be pure. They can be made pure because of Christ, but only because of Him. And so not only are we called, we're, we're called to draw near with the Christ-centered um, confidence, but what I want you to see next is this next uh, call by the, the writer. He says, let us 
hold fast. And I want you to notice this here, where especially when it comes to community, because you're like, okay, we're invited to draw near. We're told to hold fast, as we're going to see here in verse 23. But like, how can we hold fast? How do we do this? Like, okay, you're saying, my confidence is in Christ, but then I'm told to hold fast. That sounds like something's on me as well. So how can I possibly do this? Look at verse 23. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I mean, how many of you have wavered? I I waver, to be honest. You know, we waver, right? Like, we can go through tough seasons, really challenging hardships, and we're wavering. Our, maybe our confidence is waving, wavering. Our, our faith, we're like, I don't know if I have enough faith to really believe, or I, I'm not sure about all these things. And so our confidence can be really low, or our, our faith can waver. Here he's calling us, he's saying, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see what it's rooted in? It's rooted in him. He's the one who's faithful. I know I've shared this. I think I shared it this week with someone. Um, but I, I, I keep reminding, this is one of the best illustrations I can think of that I probably will say over, over like every six months or so probably. But it was a study done during the Holocaust. And I know I've shared it probably at least about a year ago or so uh, to, to many of you. And I think I was sharing it to someone this week. But I think this helps me see this, understand this, this, this passage and this confidence that we can have and this hope and where our hope is lying in. But if you remember, and you've, I'm sure you've heard the stories, or if you've ever visited Washington, D.C., have you, have you ever visited Washington, D.C. and seen the, the Holocaust Museum and, and experienced even the smell of the shoes and the train car and those things? I mean, just the, the devastation, the death, the, the, the ugliness of what happened uh, during that period of time and how the Jews were just so targeted and mistreated during that time during World War II. But if, 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 if you go back to that time, and I, I love the story of Corey Ten Boom and hearing some of the other believers who put their hope and survived the, the prison camps. But there's some, some studies that were done. There was specifically this one study that was done during um, these, uh, th- this time and observing those that there was people who survived there was others who died quickly, and there were some that even survived the, the, the prison camp but didn't make it much longer after. And there was a study done, and they, and they watched each and every one of them, and they observed these different ones. And what they found was there were some people who, as soon as they got into the prison camps, it wasn't long before they just kind of gave up. They gave up all hope. They were hopeless. They saw themselves as already doomed. They gave up. They already kind of just gave up on life, and quickly they, they died. And there was others, they had this, they were just like, man, hoping, I mean, I hope that I'll get out, one day I'll be able to, like, they're almost dreamy. Have you ever been like that? Dreamy of the day that you finally get free of something. This is like the teenager, you know, for all my years in, in student ministry, the teenager's like, I cannot wait to get my driver's license. I'll finally be free from my parents. Or one day when I get out of my home, I can't wait to be free from that. And so they're hoping and can't wait for this freedom or that freedom. <coughs> Excuse me. In a similar way, here they are, they're hoping and looking, okay, if I can just endure, you know, surely, hopefully, I'll be set free from this. Someone's going to come and rescue us. There's a, there's a battle going on, and, but I'm going to put my hope that I'm going to get back to the life that I once had. And so their hope was in freedom, and so they're waiting, and they're going to stick it out, and they can, they're willing to take the abuses and the, the punishment, the lack of food, and they just held on. But you know what happened in this study? Once they finally were set free... They go back to their hometowns and they realize everything that they had was destroyed. 
The businesses they owned, the houses they had had been taken, they'd been destroyed, they'd been wasted away, they had nothing. You know what they found? Many of those people ended up committing suicide. They become so hopeless. Their hope was in something. Their hope was in getting out of the situation they were in. But now they were out of that situation, but they got to something they thought was going to be there, but it wasn't. It was actually empty. And then there was a third group. There was a third group that survived the prison camps. Got outside. Life was a mess, and it was really hard integrating back into society. But they endured. You know what they found? They found that their hope was in something outside of this world that couldn't be taken from them. Their hope was in God. They had put their hope in something that couldn't be taken and stripped. Though everything was stripped from them, they couldn't lose this because their hope was in something outside of this world. Their hope was in God. Their hope was in eternity. Their hope was in Christ. And they were able to endure. You see here, he's saying, let us hold fast. How do we hold fast this confession? If you believe these truths and you believe this reality that we're to draw near with the confidence because of what Christ has done, listen, hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Who, where is your hope? Even like, take that practically. Where's your hope right now? I mean, your current struggle you could name that right now. I'm sure there's something that probably comes to your mind, your, your biggest struggle. Some come to my mind right away. The biggest struggle, the biggest hurdle, the biggest frustration in your life, the hardest thing imaginable in your life, where is your hope? Are you, is your hope just in getting through it? What if through it never happens? What if the cancer doesn't go away? What if... The relationship never gets restored. What if you never do get the promotion? What happens when you do lose a job? What happens when those things go? If your hope is in, all right, well, if I just have a little bit more money, if I get this promotion, then we're going to be happy. But then what happens when you do get it? You quickly find you want more because you're not meant to find satisfaction in the things of this world. Your hearts are for something greater. God has given you a desire for Him that needs to be filled. But when it's like this God-sized void that I think it was uh, Pascal, that, that it was this great quote about like we have this God-sized voice, void that we're all trying to fill to make us happy and fulfilled and satisfied. And we're filling it with things, relationships, things, stuff, all these things in hopes that it's going to make us happy. But the problem is this hole is a God-sized hole that can't be filled. You can keep filling it, keep filling it, but it's still going to feel empty because it's only meant for God. You see, where is your hope? And how can we hold fast? Here's what I want to challenge you with, with this passage, is this. It is not just a you and God thing. It's a we thing. Notice even these phrases, let us. Let us. It's always in the plural here. He's saying, let us Let us do these things. Together we do these things. And then when he's saying, what does he root this? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Here's what he goes right into right after making this statement. We're to draw near. We're to hold fast this confession. How do we do these things? How can we hold fast? You see, we do it in community. You do it in relationship with other believers. Because here's what he says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I love the NIV's word they use here, spur. Because it really gets to the heart of what the Greek word is saying is it's a spur. 
the idea, like if you, if you know anything about horseback riding or whatever, if you're a cowboy, um, or I don't think any of us in here are a cowboy that I know of, uh, and I've never had spurs on either. I mean, maybe I had some fake ones when I was a kid or something, those plastic ones, you know, or something. But, but if, you've, if you've seen it, what does a spur do? It's, it's spurring is, is actually painful, but it, what is it doing to help that horse? It's helping that horse. That horse might be running at, say, 60% speed. But this person who's riding it needs it to go 80. It needs it to go 90. It needs to give everything it's got. And what's that person going to do? It's going to spur them. It's going to give them this kick that's painful, that hurts. But what does it do? It pushes that horse to go further than it thought maybe it could go. See, here's the call. And this is what I want you to see first and foremost. As a community, spurring is painful. Spurring is painful. It's not easy, and we're called to stir up one another. How do you do this? You do this with uncomfortable conversations. You do it with, with being challenged. You do it when you say, I'm giving you access to speak into areas of my life where I'm struggling. That should happen first in your relationship, if you're married, with your spouse. Your spouse should have access to be able to speak when they notice because they're going to notice things about you. They're going to know where you're drifting and not. They're going to see that because they get to see the real you for the most part. You can, yes, keep that real you from your spouse even, but realistically, they live with you. They see when you're off. They see what's going on. They see some drifts, so maybe some waywardness in your heart and in your desires for the things of God and those things. And what are we called to do? He's saying, let us, notice this, he says this, let us consider. He uses even the word consider. I've heard it said like this, I, um, you know, when, I, when I'm counseling someone, a lot of times when I'm counseling, or maybe if you've ever been counseled, whether that's formally or informally, but if you've ever given counsel or ever uh, received counsel, what does oftentimes a counselor do? They got their, their notepad, they got their pen, and what do you think they're doing? They're taking notes why are they taking notes? They're trying to hear what's going on in your life, and they're trying to come up with a, a, an answer and a way and a, and a strategy to help you. They're considering. They're thinking through, how can I help this person? What is it that they need? So they, they take notes, and they're thinking, how can I, what can I do to help this person? Here, he's, he's calling us as the body of Christ to consider this is active. This is intentional. It's intentional and it takes active and it takes being involved in people's life so that you're able to spur one another. And what are you to spur them to do? Notice these two things. We're to spur one another. Notice a couple things. He says this, spur one another to love and good works. We're to spur one another to love and good works. How do you spur someone to love? Maybe you notice something in them that their love is, is waned. Their love for things, their love for other things maybe has become, has consumed them. And you notice the blind spots. Think about this. You know why this is so important? Community, relationships, brotherly love we looked at last week. Because probably your biggest struggles, your biggest difficulties, you know why they're the biggest things? They're oftentimes the, the worst, the most impactful things are the ones you don't see yourself. You don't even recognize it. Maybe you've become cold to it. You didn't realize it was there. I know I've shared this several times that 
parenting will do that. Like your, your children, like they, they reveal stuff in you that you, whether it's a, a laziness, whether it's a self-centeredness, whether it's, I mean, really, I think you could list off a lot of things. But I know I, for me, like with our daughter, like with Graceland, adopting her own home, this is one of the, uh, the, probably the hardest thing that we've ever done and are continuing to do. Church planning is getting up the list too, I think, but, but really difficult. But you know what it's done? Loving someone who doesn't want to give you love back. I remember, and Amanda can remember this, I was like head over heels in China. Like, I mean, I just wanted this girl. I wanted to see how fast I could get this girl to adore me. <laughs> Super selfish, I know, I get it. But I wanted, I mean, I held her for three weeks in China, everywhere, as much as she would let me. And I would just hold her and carry her. And I remember it was, it felt like yesterday, if you went outside yesterday, it was like that in Guangzhou. We went to this um, uh, zoo. We went to this zoo. And I, I mean, I just, was, it, was, it was so human. I, it reminded me of Miami with the temperatures a little bit higher. And it was just so muggy. And we were there for hours and hours. And you're like, what are we doing here? In China, they, they have these things when you're adopting. They were like required to do all these things. You're like, why are we doing all these things? We're just trying to figure out life with this new child. And she doesn't know any of us. And she's never been outside in this big world. Let's take her to a zoo, this huge zoo. And we're there. And she's sweating. I'm sweating. But I didn't really care. I'm carrying her everywhere. And I'm just like, man, I just want her to love me. I, want her, I, will, I so much wanted her love. What was I doing? I was trying to give her all this love. But you know what she wasn't doing? <laughs> she wasn't giving me love. We quickly got home and it was like, she doesn't even know who I am. Like, like the, the bonding that was happening was not going the way I was wanting it to go. And so what can happen is when someone doesn't give you love, what do you do? Move on. Well, now she's in her home. You can't just move on. We've adopted her. She's, in her, she's our child. So it's like it, it is God was using her and to awaken me up to my self-centeredness, my selfishness. She was she, he revealed some anger in me that I had no idea was there. I mean, legitimately had no idea was there. I used to get upset. I played a lot of sports. I used to get so upset. Most of the time it was up my, over myself. But I mean, I've been sad. I know you're like, Eric, really? Pastor Eric? Yeah, I was, I was kicked out of like every sport event you can think of. I mean, I was kicked out of a football game. Like, how do you get kicked out of a football game? You're allowed to hit people. Got kicked out of a football game. Baseball game. I mean, hockey. I played hockey one time in my life and got kicked out for slashing. I don't even know what slashing is, but I slashed. And they said, you're out of here. <laughs> I'm like, what? Uh, but I, I just, I would, this anger would come in me. And, but when I gave my life to the Lord, it literally was like one of those things where it was like gone. I know that's not for everybody. It's a sanctification thing, but it really felt like, like, all of a sudden, my care for, for acceptance through sports was gone. And so that seemed to get rid of anger. And I, and I think if, if Amanda and others could speak to that and say, like, Eric is very calm. Like, I, I kind of just hang out here. I don't have highs. I don't have lows, except when preaching. I'm pretty high, usually. But, like, but for the most part, I'm just here, even keeled. But for whatever reason, there was something there that was missing. I didn't see it. But then when Amanda's like, Eric, like, you need to calm down. Or like, when you, like, let's take a break. Like, I needed someone else to speak into things that I didn't see were there. You see, this is what the body of Christ is for. It's to spur one another to love and to good works. Like, have you ever been motivated by someone else's love? Have you ever been motivated by someone else's good works? 
their willingness to serve, watching them serve, watch them love, watch them selflessly give of themselves. You know how motivating that is? I can think of over the years, all these different people, I could, I could start listing off their names, one after the other, that in different ways spurred me to love and good works. You see, the church, like if we think of this where it says not neglecting to meet, you know, a lot of pastors, we use this phrase, like, hey, we should come and gather as the body of Christ. This became a theme verse for a lot of churches after the pandemic. Was like, like if you go and search online and look for like sermons on this passage, you're going to find a lot of sermons in 2020 and 2021 on this passage. Because everyone, you know, because of the, all the, the social distancing and the churches closing and all that stuff, coming back, it's like, all right, let's, don't for, neglect the meeting yourselves. Don't stay at home. Don't watch online. You need to be in the church. But here's the thing. This doesn't, this, what we're seeing here, doesn't even happen here just sitting there. I mean, yes, I can try to spur you, and I try to do that. Like, I try to encourage you. We're going to look at that in a second. But that happens in community. It happens in community groups. It happens in relationships. But like sitting in a service isn't going to do that. How do you spur each other? Yes, we can do that through our our voices as we sing to God. There is an aspect of that where we're encouraging each other through that. But really, the deep down, the, the challenging and speaking into sin areas and struggles doesn't just happen on a Sunday morning. It happens in community. And here we're called, let us hold fast. And how are we to hold fast? How do we to endure? How do we to keep going on? If we're going to draw near and grow closer to God, we do that in community as we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And notice the next one is this. How else do we do this? How can we hold fast? I want you to see this. We do this through encouraging one another. We do this so there's the difficult part, right, of spurring. It's speaking into areas. It's being willing and vulnerable to let someone else speak into your life. Give, I mean, you should be giving people permission to do that. But notice the positive, I guess we'll say the positive side is, is that we're called to encourage one another. Notice what he says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but rather what do we do? We encourage one another. But notice this, he's like, hey, all the more as you see the day. When you have that phrase, the day, the day is kind of like ultimate, it's like the end when Christ returns, the, a real ultimate judgment usually. Talking about like as the day is drawing near, the time is coming, the Lord is going to come back one day and the, and, and the end times are going to begin and this life is going to, this life as we know it will be over and we'll enter into eternity. He's saying, as that day is drawing near, all the more let us be spurring one another and let us be encouraging one another. How has someone encouraged you? Think of like all the ways that we can encourage one another and practice the one another's. I think one of the most simple ways we talk about is just a simple text message saying like, hey, I heard you were going through this. I, you know, you, you were involved in their life. You got to hear something that was going on. And you follow up with like, hey, how did it go with that meeting? How did it go with the weekend that you had? You know, you told me you were going to be doing this. Like, you're just following up. You're being there. And you're like, man, that's... And then like when you hear like it's a, a report that was good or you hear about a, 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 a doctor's appointment and you check in on those things and you listen how that is encouraging to the other person. 
or when, I know, and I get to see this in our church as, as different ones have, have children and babies or someone has hospital stay and those kind of things. And what do we do? An encouragement as simple as like, hey, we just wanted to bring a meal so you didn't have to think about it tonight. Like those are encouraging. That is ways to love one another. And it's an encouraging way that you're encouraging a relationship. You're seeking relationship. And you don't just do this on Sunday morning. This happens in community. Listen, here's the call. We can draw near. We're called to hold fast. How do we do these things? We do this in community. And as I was saying last week, and it's, I think it's on your weekly guide, a great time to jump in on community and getting into relationships with other believers and working on spurring one another, living in community, encouraging one another, helping each other to love and good works. One great way to do this is through a community group. And uh, we have community groups starting back up again the week of September 10th. September 10th. And on your weekly guide, on the very front page, there's a, a thing called Rooted. And Rooted is like a 10-week experience study that we want all of our community groups to go through this year. And, and listen, I want you to commit to it. If you feel like I can commit to, hey, 10 weeks, we'll even build a break in there in the middle as well. I think there's a Thanksgiving week that's going to be off as well. But 10 weeks, basically from September 11th with a break off once and then another one for Thanksgiving. So I think we finished the very last uh, week of November. But 10 weeks to try it out. What can it hurt? Like, try it out. Like, give yourself. Say, you know, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to come and attend. I'm going to listen to other people speak into my life. And I'm, when I'm given an opportunity, I'm going to speak up and maybe show some encouraging, encouraging words towards someone or, or ask how they're doing. Or I'm going to open up my heart to someone. And I'm going to share that. I'm going to be vulnerable, like authentic that we were talking about a few weeks ago. But can you imagine what that would look like? You know what I believe it would look like? It would look a lot like the passage we're going to look at next week. It would look a lot like Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, we get to see this great picture. We're going to study it next week and look at it, but I'm going to preface it this week. Listen to what it tells us was happening in, in, in Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And notice what happened. As they're gathering together, from house to house, notice what it says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And notice what it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, notice this day by day aspect, this is not just a Sunday to Sunday this is a day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Listen, you want to see a movement of drawing near to God, of, of enduring to the end, this idea of holding fast your confession? Listen, commit yourself to community. Commit yourself to a local body of believers to spur you on to love and good works, to encourage you. But here's the thing, not it's a two-way street, right? It, it's a both and. We, we do it, we, we, we give it, and we receive it. We're giving encouragement. But here's the mutual benefit. You also get it as well as others are giving it from themselves. 
Listen, that's what I want to see in our church. I want to see a community of believers, Redeemer Community Church, a, a community of believers who are loving God with all their heart, with their soul and mind, but they're loving one another. We love people and we do that in community. And I want to encourage you to do that. You can sign up. You can register online. We have a, a resource for you for that. There's going to be two experiences that we'll have. We have a prayer experience that I'm excited about. It'll be a separate night where we just come together um, and, and spend like an hour and a half of prayer. And you might be like, how in the world could I ever pray for an hour and a half? Well, we'll help you with that. We'll facilitate it as well. But we also want to have a serve experience through the 10 weeks to where we serve together in a community group as well. So I'm really excited about this. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to go ahead and do that. Uh, signups will be open up leading up to that week of September 10th. But I encourage you, let's, let's, let's model this passage in Hebrews 10. Let me pray uh, as we close and as we jump into worship uh, together one last time. Uh, Father in heaven, we... Um, thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, ultimate sacrifice on the cross, by his shed blood, we have access that we can come confidently. Think of Isaiah 6 as Isaiah has this vision of, of the throne room of heaven as he is coming to your presence, and exactly what he sees is what I feel is, and I'm sure it's what each of us feels, is how unworthy and how undone we are. I'm totally exposed, and I, that's ugly, that's messy, that's sinful, it's broken, but we can only have confidence to come to you because of Christ in our place, that it's the gospel, Jesus in my place, and so I just want to thank you, pause, and just thank you, God, for saving me, God, for opening my eyes to my need of rescue, that I could never be good enough. But I, God, I want to just thank you for the church. I thank you for this group of people, some that are here today and others that are away from us today, but many who, who have spurred me to love and good works. I pray that we would be that way to other people, that we'd spur one another, that we'd encourage one another, that stir each other up towards love and good works and be an encouragement to each other. God, I thank you so much that we can draw near to you. Thank you for the access that's provided because of Christ. Help us to enjoy that. Help us to rest there and enjoy our Savior and rest in you. And so, Father, we just want to offer our thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you've done. And I pray that we would, as we were singing earlier, that we would be satisfied in you. God, that you really would be our greatest treasure, wellspring of our soul. And so we thank you for our Redeemer, and we ask all this, and we ask for your help to worship you in spirit and truth, even as we close today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing.